It is a uh, Thursday, April the uh, 12th. Today is uh, Holocaust Remembrance Day. And uh, for people of the Hebraic American persuasion, uh, this is a, a pretty important day. And so uh, a few years ago, I did a story of my father. Matter of fact, I've been talking about my dad's story as a Holocaust survivor for ever since I've been a kid. And so I interviewed him for this show many years ago. And I've played it a few times. And uh, people keep on asking me, when are you going to play it again? When are you going to play it again? And this uh, is my dad's story. Now, he may be a little bit difficult to understand because even though he came to the United States in 1956, to the day he died, he sounded like he got off the boat the morning before. Uh, English was by far his weakest language. He spoke nine languages, and English was the worst one he spoke. So uh, what I'd like you to do, if you would, is listen to the story of my dad, Leo Handel, as a Holocaust survivor. During the 1930s, my father was a youthful, vigorous man living in Europe. He was schooled in the best universities, studied several languages. He witnessed the rise of evil in Germany. He was arrested, tortured, released. He escaped to the Vatican, and he lost his parents in the Holocaust. And all of this before he was 25 years old. In honor of my father, I want to present to you the life of Leo Handel. Wolf and Golda Handel were both in their 30s and living in Poland when Leo was born in 1920. In the years to follow, the Polish economy was faltering, so the Handels decided to look for a better life in Yugoslavia. So Wolf and Golda, along with Leo, who was nine at the time, and his younger sister Jetta, four, settled in Zagreb, a big city of about half a million people. The Handels opened up a dry goods store and lived in an apartment nearby. And the family made a pretty good living, which allowed the children to get literally the best education in all of Europe. Zagreb was a, a wonderful city, a university city. And I started gymnasium, which was very strict. You have to make an admission test. And you had 11 subjects, history, mathematics, science, astronomy, chemistry, physics, five languages, five languages. Fortunately for Leo, his study of languages would in the years to come literally save his life as world events dramatically changed. In 1933, Leo was 13 years old and he was preparing for his bar mitzvah. On the day of his celebration into manhood, thousands of people in Germany were holding their own celebration. The Germans had decided to elect a new chancellor, Adolf Hitler. So while Leo was busy mastering Latin and French and Italian and German and other languages, Hitler was following his destiny, increasing the size of the German army, authorizing the formation of the Gestapo, building the first of the concentration camps. And little by little, the actions of Hitler and the Nazis filtered through Europe. Germany declared Jews inferior with unclean blood. Shops and restaurants increasingly refused to serve Jews. Germans were encouraged not to go to Jewish doctors or lawyers. Jews were not allowed to go into professions. Laws were passed in which Jews couldn't marry Aryans. Hitler's intent originally was to make life so miserable for the Jews, they would leave Germany. Some did, many didn't. So Hitler's plan was to make the whole of Europe into a place in which the Aryan race would reign supreme and Jews wouldn't exist. This nationalistic fever that Hitler promoted in Germany began to spread to other countries in Europe, including Yugoslavia, 
where the handles were living. In 1939, Leo was 19 years old and studying to become an engineer. That was also the same year that marked the beginning of World War II when Germany invaded Poland. Over the next 48 months, the German army was a military juggernaut, unstoppable, taking over Norway and Denmark and Czechoslovakia and France and launching bombing raids on Britain. And in time, the Nazis set their sight on the Balkans, on Yugoslavia. The nationalistic fervor that the Nazis embodied inspired groups and other nations to follow their suit. In Yugoslavia, for example, there was a movement known as the Ustashi, latched onto the notion that Jews and other inferior races were the source of their problems. So when it was time for the Nazis to take over Yugoslavia, there were the Ustashi, ready, willing to help the Nazis. It is now 1941. On a bright Sunday morning in April, Leo's 21 years old, sees a sight he will never forget. The Nazis and the Ustashi, the nationalists, being welcomed into Zagreb. The day was festive. The radio blared, long live Hitler. The Nazis proclaiming Yugoslavia liberated from Jews and gypsies. Leo knew that bad times were coming. I was, I was trembling. I was trembling. I saw the Nazis coming in the city and people giving flowers and, and, and welcome it. And I saw the reality. I see the end, a not good end, a, a catastrophe. I, I will say, Father, listen, we have no future. And I heard that the Italians are saving Jews, that they're very good, they're very humane. Despite the fact that they still fight with Hitler, they, they refuse to give the Jews to Germany, and it was denied. I said, we have to go. Look what is happening. I have the store, everything here. Why should I go? Now, Wolf, Leo's dad, my grandfather, believed that his stature in Zagreb as a store owner would protect his family from this nightmare. But unfortunately for the Handels, the nightmare would actually catch up with them, and pretty quickly. The Nazis spared no time in purging the Jews from Yugoslavia. One day... The Ustashi police show up at the door of the Handel family. They came in one afternoon and knocked on the door. They came in with a taxi and picked me up, and they said that they're going to interrogate me. I was taken to the Ferrygrad, which was very close to the home. There were already several hundred people, men, women, and children. There was only one spigot of water for all the, the, the people. They were saying outside, sitting on the dirt and, and everything here. This camp was meant by 15 or 16-year-old kids who joined the so-called Ustashi Youth, which was a imitation of the Hitler Youth. Uh, I've seen one person just clubber to death. This I've seen. But... Uh, I assume that it wasn't the first and the last time. A couple of days later, Leo heard his name being called out on a loudspeaker. It turns out that his dad had tracked down an old military friend who was now a commanding general in the army. That was the connection my grandfather had. That's why he thought his family would be protected. And that general gave the order to let Leo go free. Leo went straight home and approached his dad with a plan to take refuge in Italy. We got to get out of here. Wolf refused, reassured his son, we're going to be okay. We have this protection. Our family will be all right. Two weeks later, 
There was another knock on the door of the Handel family. Two men in their 30s, wearing black uniforms, politely asked, Is Leo Handel here? My dad had opened the door. Yes, I'm Leo Handel. Once again, the Ustashi police were rounding up all of the educated young men in the area for interrogation. Leo followed them into the car and was taken away. Leo sat in the back seat as the car made its way through Zagreb. It pulled up on Rashkoga Street, number 9. And there the sign said, Ustashi Police, Jewish Department. The Ustashi Police had formed a special Jewish department that had complete autonomy. If anyone resisted them for any reason, the police were authorized to shoot. As for that department on Rashkoga Street, number 9, it was a home that once belonged to a wealthy Jewish family. It was now a place for the Ustashi to carry out their interrogations. No one said a word as Leo was taken from the car, literally thrown into one of the bathrooms. Moments later, someone came in, blindfolded him, and... They tied me up on a piano wire, which I still have here, the mark, hang me there and start beating. Anytime I fainted, took me down, put my water in a can of water, so I wake up. This is about three days, three days. For three days, the interrogator beat Leo with a rubber hose. Give me the name of the communist, he barked. Leo responds, I don't know any. The sound of the radio blaring German marches masked the sound of the rubber hose cutting through the air as it hit and kept on hitting Leo's torso. The interrogator screams, every Jew is a communist. Give me the name of a communist. Leo says, I don't know any. Three days later, Leo woke up once more to the splash of water, but this time, instead of being tortured, instead of being hit with a rubber hose, he's cut down from the pipe and said, you can go. Again, my grandfather's friend in the army had intervened to set Leo free. Leo arrived home and told his father, I go. I go to Italy. And I suggest you go too. The answer was, have the store. Money for, for everything here, I'm safe. And this was his famous word. Leo's mom didn't say a word. She packed a suitcase with money, shirts, socks, shoes, coffee, some other goods. Leo kissed his father, his mother, and his sisters goodbye. It was July of 1941. That was the last time you would ever see his parents. It was at that time that Leo, who was then 21, decided to seek refuge in Italy. Leo made his way out of Yugoslavia by sneaking across the border to the Dalmatian coast. This was an area controlled by the Italians. Now, even though Italy was part of the Axis, or allies with Germany, they did provide refuge to the Jews. Mussolini was not anti-Semitic. Months later, Leo ends up in Rovigo, a small province in Italy where many Jewish refugees had fled to. And while there, Leo had met up with some of his uncles and cousins. Meanwhile, back in Yugoslavia... Leo's dad, Wolf, was finalizing some creative arrangements to have his daughters, Leo's sisters, sent to Italy. The plan was this. Wolf knew a woman that had a passport with herself and her two young boys. In those days, children were on the same passport as the parents. So he had two daughters at that time. My aunts, age 15 and 6, cut their hair and actually wear berets. Over the course of two trips... This woman took each of the daughters by train to Italy. 
When an officer came by to check the woman's papers, he saw one of the boys, actually one of my aunts, sleeping in the overhead compartment, stamp the passport and approve the travel. When the sisters arrived, they told Leo how they had spoken with the Archbishop of Zagreb, and he advised them, you go to the Vatican to seek further assistance. It is now 1944. Reichsfuhrer Heinrich Himmler arrived in Yugoslavia to personally rid the country of the Jews, the gypsies, and other undesirables. Meanwhile, Jetta, the oldest of the sisters, is pounding on the doors of the Vatican. The older sister had a letter that the ecclesiastical authorities should help her any place, any time. She was 15. She went straight to the Vatican, start, fell on the floor, crying, showed the letter. She wants to see the Pope, his holiness. <laughs> Who the heck are you? I mean, the po- you have to have an audience in this time, you know. To see the Pope is, is, is something, you know, this is a dream. So who met her was Cardinal Borgongini Duca. Cardinal Duca was the Secretary of Education for the Vatican. He agreed to help the Handels by placing them in various Vatican institutions. The two sisters are placed in a convent. The uncles and cousins are used as gardeners. And Leo is tapped to be a Salesian teacher, educating young clerics, memorizing the Latin Mass, teaching catechism. And because of the intervention of Pope Pius XII, many Jews, including the Handels, were actually able to survive the Holocaust. But the Nazis were getting wise to this plan. They raided some institutions, rounded up the Jews that were hiding there. In one instance, two kids from Leo's school were being held. One night, Leo and his supervisor, Don Melomo, went to the local Reichsmarschall to pay him a visit. Don Melomo goes with me, and Reichsmark to Kessinger asked for the two kids. And I only translate what he he said. So the first thing, if if there's any Jews hidden in the the convent, because they found a lot of Jews in other convents, unfortunately. So I turn to him and ask him, any Jews hidden to him? He says, no, and I translate nine. Calm with a straight face, you know, and we went home. And I think in the same time, a little bit later, the two kids were delivered on the steps of the convent. This is the power of Don Melomo had in the Vatican in this time. It is now July 6, 1944. Rome is liberated. For months, Leo had passed himself off as a cleric, a religious teacher in the Vatican. Now he and the relatives are free to move as they please. I went out with the uniform, and the first thing when I came in the uniform, the teachers, the students, they were astonished, you know. And I thank them, and I, I say I thank the Holy Church uh, for saving, which is true, for saving my life. Leo's next step was to help finish off the Nazis. He volunteers to join the British Army. Originally, he started as a cook, but word got out that Leo was good with languages. So he was transferred to the front in intelligence to help interrogate captured Nazis. Leo came across 15-year-old captains, 16-year-old majors. As Leo says, soldiers with no pubic hair. He knew the Nazis were disintegrating at this point, and it was just a matter of time before the end would come. In the end, at the end of the war, he was discharged from the army, 
He spent a year as a translator for the Italian Supreme Court. And in 1946, Leo immigrated to Brazil, one of the few countries to openly let in Jews. Applied to come to the United States, but the United States was not letting in Jews. Not for decades. Once Leo got to Brazil... Jewish organizations that were involved throughout the entire world in helping refugees put up Leo in a local hotel. And that's where he met his wife, my mother, Nahama. By coincidence, Nahama was supposed to meet a friend somehow, and the friend didn't come. I was there, and it was uh, some sort of love of first, <laughs> of, of first sight. We were about a year engaged because, you know, no money to get married, you know, very, very different. We were engaged a year, and after a year, we, we, we married. One year later, Bill was born, and two and a half years later, Mark was born. Leo and his family eventually immigrated to the United States, 10 years later, basing themselves in Southern California. Soon after, he made a trip back to Zagreb to find out what happened to his parents. Everywhere he went, he got a different story. Some say they disappeared. Others say they left. Others say they were rounded up. The only thing that Leo knows for sure is that in the town's records, there is a listing of Wolf and Golda Handel. And next to their names is the last known official record of their existence. And it reads, Taken Away. We now are pretty sure they were shipped in cattle cars to Auschwitz as a group of other Jews from that town were during that time. Decades later, at age 84, Leo reflects on the Holocaust, on the chances that his father and mother did not take to leave Zagreb, and how those decisions affect him to this day. Listen, the whole Holocaust... This was a system which is undescribable. It defies every reason. So I'm not going to analyze my father, and I'm not going to consider myself smarter. If, if I start analyzing, I would hate him, and I don't want to. All right, that's uh, the story of uh, my dad. And uh, the guilt that he had his entire life, and he did. He didn't talk much about it, but I knew how guilty he was that he couldn't talk his parents out of there. And uh, there is uh, the last photo that exists of his uh, mom and dad are the passport photos they took to uh, try to get a visa out of Yugoslavia. But by the time uh, that happened, by the time the application was made, the border had shut down. And uh, there was no way anybody was going to get out. And, of course, uh, he was able to get out by, by escaping. But uh, you know, his folks were in their 50s. And it was just very, very difficult. So um, that's his story. You know, I want to I make a point here. You know, a lot of people go, oh, that's a, what an incredible story. That's uh, an astounding story. Every single story of a Holocaust survivor can be made into a movie. Everyone. We talk about Schindler's List, uh, Steven Spielberg's film, uh, about that extraordinary story of Oscar Schindler. You know, in as astounding as that story is, there are many, many more like it. Uh, not necessarily what Schindler did, but uh, just survival stories and stories that are just completely crazy. 
one of the early lawyers, when I started practicing law, I was in my office, and there was a lawyer that had an office just down the hall from me. Uh, and as a young boy of 15, he was one of uh, those people that were lined uh, in front of a pit and shot. These were the days before the the mechanized uh, killing took place, the killing factories took place. And they would uh, simply line up people in a, in a pit and shoot them, and uh, they realized very quickly that was not particularly an efficient way of doing that. So then they went into the industrial killing of the various camps. And uh, there he was as a young boy, and uh, the shots came. He was lined up with his family, and the particular shot that hit him grazed his skull. He uh, didn't die. He survived. And he remembers and talks about how he lay down under the bodies of his family that entire day and was able to crawl out uh, at night and then went on to survive the war and then went on to become an attorney. And uh, that's another story of uh, which there are so many. All right. uh, Let's. Just, uh, oh, if you want to listen to, uh, oh, the interview, uh, you can listen to it again and uh, see the pictures of Leo. We have four or five pictures of Leo, but kind of fun pictures. You know, he's smiling. He's happy. You know, my kids are there. You get to see a picture of my kids at three years of age. Boy, those are the days, right? That was before they could actually ask me for a credit card. Well, you talk about memory, huh?